And next up, we have uh, Sara Torres Vega, who is an education research assistant at the Museum of Modern Art in New York. And her presentation is entitled The 21st Century Museum as a Lab, Lessons Learned from MoMA's Educational History. So take it away, Sarah. Thank you. Hi. Uh, thank you for having me in this uh, symposium that I think is addressing a very important issue. Uh, we are at the Museum of Modern Art. I'm right here now uh, in cloudy New York today. Um, we are approaching a very big expansion. And we like to say that what we are doing now can be divided between after the expansion, before the expansion. It's like our uh, ways of uh, measuring time right now. And it is an excellent opportunity because with an expansion, we need to find a way of reimagining what we are as an institution. And uh, this presentation is called the 21st Century Museum as a Laboratory. Um, and one might say that uh, what does a museum have to do with a laboratory, which we, in our uh, popular culture, imagine as a space with speakers, burners, and other appliances to um, carry out experiments. But uh, I would like to approach the concept of the laboratory from a broader perspective from uh, the idea that museums can be uh, places that no longer uh, exhibit or display uncontestable truths, but uh, a place where ideas can be challenged, tested, and co-created. And uh, what a better way to make sense of what we are now than looking at our past to make sense of our present as we look our future. And Alfred Barr, the first director of the museum in 1939, uh, while he was celebrating uh, the 10th anniversary of the museum, said the Museum of Modern Art is a laboratory. In its experiments, uh, the public is invited to participate. So the skeptical researcher that is in me, I well, thought. Um, the Museum of Modern Art is a laboratory, and I was thinking, well, uh, curatorially speaking, it was a laboratory. It was exhibiting experiments in modern art, painting, sculpture, drawing, film, photography, design, objects of design, art made by children as well, um, for an audience, uh, a New York audience that was relatively new to it. But then the second part, in its experiments, the public is invited to participate. That took me uh, a long time to figure out what he was talking about. And uh, as they say, it was under my nose, uh, the answer. It referred to education. I'm an education professional at the Museum of Modern Art. And uh, in 1937, two years before Alfred Barr said that the Museum of Modern Art uh, is a laboratory, uh, Victor D'Amico was hired as the first uh, director of the educational project, as it was called at the time, that was a great-grandparent uh, of our current uh, education department. So what was this educational project about? It was an intent to bring people inside the museum that would not naturally be inclined to, uh, to visit. Uh, with an approach to understanding modern art through process, 
through art making and literally have people experiment with the museum and co-creating the museum. The people in charge of this experiment were artists and they were educators. Uh, at this time uh, and this context, uh, education on art was not uh, separated from one another. We would be talking about education as an art form. So similarly as they were exhibiting experiments in modern art, education was another experiment uh, as well to, to work with. And that uh, the energies and the engines that teaching involves are the same as any other creative act. And uh, we have, for example, Annie Albers taught at the Museum of Modern Art. And it all had art experience uh, as a problem-solving situation. That is a similar element uh, that we find uh, at a lab, that we have a problem. And through art, we, come, we can come up with an individual resource. All surrounded by this philosophy of art for all, for the purpose of fuller living. That art had to be something that was fully intertwined with everyday life uh, events, with everyday living. So, Victor D'Amico considered that a laboratory or studio had to be established at a museum for conducting experiments. It will be planned express, expressly for conducting experiments in appreciation and creative work. Such a room, and he's talking about a real space, uh, has been designed by the director, Victor D'Amico, uh, to serve the function of both studio and gallery. So it was a convertible studio gallery because you get to appreciate that was their thinking behind this idea that you get to understand other people's creative processes if you understand your own. So the first uh, experiment that we know of is the Young People's Gallery. Young People's Gallery was a space that was uh, designed both as a gallery and a studio and in this place, you could see teenagers handling original artworks, choosing what would go on the walls. Uh, there were student juries organized so that they would work with uh, the education team so that they could come up with exhibitions. This space had the same uh, status as any other gallery in the museum. And this is uh, one of the exhibitions Creative Growth, Childhood to Maturity, in 1939. The, this exhibition was the first solo exhibition by a woman at the Museum of Modern Art. And it was curated uh, by a student jury, by uh, the education department. And we see it, how it could change so that uh, with this uh, design, well, it was designed all this furniture by the uh, education department so that it could allow people to go to the museum and have a creative experience through art making. And it all had a, an underlying philosophy that uh, has to do with, well, 
value of art in the, in the society of the United States. Uh, it was about championing art. We cannot scrap art or the art teacher in the curriculum without scrapping America's creative power. Then the following experiment that happened in the same place as the Young People's Gallery was the Children's Art Carnival. This Children's Art Carnival was a space that was divided into, into different areas. The first one was about motivation. The child would uh, be exposed to different uh, elements, different playthings, different artworks that were hanged at children's eye level and that the children would be able to, in many cases, touch um, so that they could fully experience what uh, modern art was. And the other area was to apply uh, all the learnings, all the uh, creative stimuli that the children have perceived in that uh, motivational area and translate it into something, uh, something tangible, something, an object, or uh, something else that might have been a song, might have been a poem, uh, that had to do with all that uh, sense of uh, experimentation that modern art involved. So this space uh, would have served uh, as a laboratory in two ways. Uh, on one hand, children were there to experiment, to have a direct interaction with art making. And on the other, teachers and uh, parents would be observing uh, how children get to interact with art uh, in a controlled atmosphere. So we have this notion of experimentation of the museum that potentially can absorb the experimentation of uh, its visitors to become a better institution that I found very interesting. The point of that experimentation was to focus on real children and on real people if uh, we are talking about other audiences. So every classroom, every studio can become a research center uh, and every teacher a researcher, finding out what children really need and what needs to be done. All this was in intended to help the child uh, to find its own individual expression that was so important in modern art. It was not about suggesting that all children were artists. It was about suggesting that they have a kinship with the artist in the sense that they are naturally creative. And it expanded. Uh, it proved to be very successful, and it went to Milan in, uh, in Italy in 1957, also to Spain, and uh, take a second to enjoy this wonderful picture. Of, uh, I have not said this before, but in the creative area, uh, adults were not allowed except for the uh, facilitators and the educators that were helping the children to make the most of the experience. But here we see how these nuns could not allow uh, that to happen. And they were taking part uh, as participants in the Children's Art Carnival. And their wimples will help uh, as a, another motivation at the same level as any other artwork. Uh, let's remind ourselves it's about 
art for all for the purpose of fuller living, that art and life is fully intertwined. So we can find beauty and we can find uh, motivation in uh, every corner of our daily living. And then it went to Brussels, and we see um, Grace Kelly and uh, Prince Rainer with uh, Eugene Crixby. Uh, he was one of the uh, educators, artist educators of the uh, carnival in Brussels. And uh, India. So here she is, Indira Gandhi, hands-on uh, with the children having uh, also uh, a creative experience with them uh, and uh, putting this experiment to the level of uh, something of national interest, which I think is quite interesting to find uh, how these experiments could get upgraded to uh, the level of something that personalities would get involved. And the permanent space where it stays today, uh, not anymore under the sponsorship of the Museum of Modern Art, the Children's Art Carnival in Harlem. And um, in that case, it was artist uh, Betty Blyton Taylor directing that experiment. That, like I said, it continues today. In the interest of making every house uh, a space for, uh, for experimentation, to the Enchanted Gate was a TV show that uh, would enhance this creativity in people's houses. And the Veterans Art Center uh, was uh, a creation of Abialdic Rockefeller, one of the founders of the museum. And there they would approach a, a new teaching method for this kind of audience. The People's Art Center for 20 years uh, that experimented with uh, with different kinds of art making that help us in valuing these experiences as something that needs to be extended for long periods of time and we can think of how that can influence uh, our way of seeing projects at museums now. And if there's no space in the museum, why not go to the coast of uh, Amagansett and repurpose that First World War Navy barge? Uh, into uh, art school. So these are basically the uh, main experiments that uh, the Museum of Modern Art carried out in this period. So this idea of sharing curation of uh, the elements that we decide to display, the importance of motivation and experimentation in the uh, museum environment that museums can create spaces to be responsive to social needs, like in the Veterans Art Center, and that we know that experiments can only be meaningful if they are carried out in the long run. And also, if we think of the museum beyond its walls, maybe it's not so much about creating a definition of a museum, but to creating a frame of action. So. This is an opportunity for collectively exploring a museum that I don't think yet exists. That uh, in this reimagination of ourselves, what we need to have clear is that our audience is going to be a central role, and it's going to be uh, the focus 
when we reimagine ourselves for an unknown future. So, thank you. So now our third presenter is Diana Marsh, who is a postdoctoral fellow at the National Anthropological Archives, National Museum of Natural History, Smithsonian Institution. And she will be presenting her paper on Toward Inclusive Museum Archives, User Research at the Smithsonian's National Anthropological Archives. OK, thank you. Uh, can you hear me OK? Yes. He nods. Um, so thank you, Susie, um, and thanks to the um, whole organizing committee uh, for having me here. Um, so yeah, I'm a postdoctoral fellow at the National Anthropological Archives, which, as I'll talk about, is very nested within uh, the Smithsonian. It's within the Department of Anthropology in the National Museum of Natural History at the Smithsonian Institution. And um, I'm an anthropologist by training, doing research there. Um, today, I want to talk about inclusivity in this large national museum archival collection. And um, in terms of ICOM's definition of a museum, I want to focus on broadening the notion of access. You know, the, the idea of open to the public is in there. But as we saw in Francois' talk, uh, there's this possibility of adding to those kind of functional areas, access um, and inclusion and, and other, um, other ideas there. And in this case, I'm going to talk about um, specifically non-academic and Native American community users uh, in the archives who are main kind of stakeholders outside of kind of traditional academic researchers. And I'm going to talk about this research project that I've been doing over the past year to talk about how we're going to try to incorporate user feedback into the way we think about increasing access. So um, just to give you a little background about the National Anthropological Archives um, and formerly Human Studies Film Collections or National Sorry about that. Um, National Anthropological Film Collections, um, founded in 1879 uh, with the Bureau of American Ethnology. Am I frozen here? Your video is frozen, but it's, your audio is fine. Your video is, but we can hear okay, so you. I'll just keep talking. OK, so um, John Wesley Powell, the, the Bureau of American Ethnology, um, which is a major United States um, collecting institution, collecting um, histories and cultures of indigenous peoples of the United States throughout the 19th century and into the 20th. Um, it's dedicated to the history of anthropology and world cultures. We've got about 18,000 cubic feet of material. Um, and it's one of the world's largest archival collections of indigenous languages, as well as of ethnographic film. Um, so especially sort of piggybacking on Alice's talk earlier, um, these are largely collections from uh, acquired through anthropologists in all four fields, cultural, biological, linguistic, and archaeological, um, in different parts of the United States, um, often among indigenous communities. And so we have this colonial history, and a lot of the knowledge in these archival collections was obtained from indigenous communities under ethical uh, conditions that are not what we would consider um, uh, optimal today. And um, so unlike with museum collections, we don't have um, a, an equivalent of NAGPRA, really, in the archives. Um, so. Since 2006, archival collections like the National Anthropological Archives have been trying to follow the protocols for the treatment of Native American and archival materials, which were put together in 2006. And um, it's very exciting for the, the archival field that um, just this past 
summer, this past meeting of the Society of American Archivists, the society actually adopted these protocols formally. So there's now a much stronger mandate to all archives that have these collections to um, treat indigenous sovereignty seriously and also to think about culturally sensitive access. So when we say access, we don't mean everything's open to everyone all the time, but that there are cultural protocols um, associated with different kinds of records that might be sensitive or might, as Alice brought up, might have certain gender restrictions or certain seasonal restrictions, that kind of thing. So the premise of this grant was that uh, we wanted to see these collections in more secondary use, both among anthropologists and outside of that field, um, and that currently uh, access is hindered by a lot of the ways that people can access these collections by the way they're described, the records themselves. So um, the goal is to increase use and access and discoverability and hopefully to um, come up with methods and standards that can be used in other archives that have similar collections. So over this past year, um, I've been working to understand both the repository's needs as well as um, researcher needs and then to understand how researchers actually go about trying to find information in the archives and trying to understand that process. So I spent a lot of time uh, getting to know the institution, internal interviews, literature and reports, um, and then looking a lot at the user data that the archives currently has, trying to get a sense of who currently comes to the archives and how, um, web analytics, and then doing hands-on work in the archives, so working reference and also working on a broad collections assessment that's getting kind of a survey of all of the collections and their condition as well as their access points. And then what I'll focus on primarily, um, these interviews that I did with a bunch of users, so going through IRB to get permission to do this research, talking to people from different groups, and, um, and then eventually I also did uh, focus groups with Smithsonian people, but I'm not going to talk about that today. Um, so some preliminary things that we confirmed or found, um, the NAA has this very large collection, even within the Smithsonian. It's one of its largest archival holdings. And we have the third largest um, group of users in person of any of the Smithsonian's archives. And considering how nested we are and how, um, how very few people have heard of us, it's pretty impressive that that many people make it physically um, to Suitland, Maryland, where we're located. We're not even on the mall. Um, and we also get uh, users from 49 U.S. states and 33 countries. So we have a lot of um, use of these collections. And not surprisingly, we have major intellectual access barriers. So um, of the collections that we surveyed this year, which were just our named collections, aka papers of Ruth Landis, uh, so the they're organized by the anthropologist who created those or collected those records, um, only 16% of those collections have a kind of up-to-date ideal finding aid, you know, keyword searchable uh, and END encoded finding aid um, that's online. Um, and only 28% had any finding aid online. So a lot of the collections that we have are basically only accessible um, if you get in touch with us and we send you a PDF that explains what's in these collections, or they have almost no record at all. They have some really basic um, record. Uh, and then our website is really difficult and challenging and confusing, and very few people actually um, stay on it when they get there. So that was interesting to find out. Um, so I spent some time going through our 2016 users, because that was kind of the most recent complete sort of data set, if you will, that we had, and broke it down. And it turns out um, Native community researchers are our second uh, largest uh, group of users. 
So that's important to have confirmed. We sort of thought maybe that was the case, but indeed it is, and that's really important. And also that we have an almost equal number of non-academic and academic users. So this is really not just a place for professional academic anthropologists to come research the history of anthropology. It has much wider use um, for people, you know, working on exhibitions or doing photo research or documentary films, doing their own community language programs, all kinds of things. And so what I did was interview um, a range of users uh, kind of loosely correlated to this breakdown of who are our most common users. So some things that um, I found from interviews, um, indeed, the National Anthropological Archives is hidden, and people haven't really heard of it except through kind of word of mouth channels. Um, a lot of the history of these collections has led to problematic, incorrect information. So, um, you know, a lot of, unfortunately, kind of racist terminology is still in there in some of these native records. Um, a lot of our collections are dispersed. This is a common archival problem, but it makes it really difficult for people to find things when it's when records might be scattered at multiple archival repositories across the U.S. And it's especially confusing that there's the National Archives right down the road and we're the National Anthropological Archives. <laughs> so that gets confusing for people. Um, and then the, the depth of the description of these records. So there's often it's really, really slim description. So it'll be 500 boxes of someone's papers and you'll get like a half paragraph that says these are the papers of such and such anthropologist which tells you very little if you're a native community researcher. <laughs> um, our online platforms are not really intuitive, and at the Smithsonian, we have a lot of different entry points to collections, and as you know, many, many museums and a zoo that are part of the Smithsonian. Um, and importantly, there are differences in how people search based on you know, who they are and what their background is. So for instance, um, community researchers are more often going to look up Kiowa or Crow or a community name, and a, an academic researcher is more likely to look up um, Alice Rudlichka or the name of some anthropologist, which is how the records are actually organized. So there's an inherent difference in access based on how people think about information and how they search for it. So that's interesting. Um, the logistics are prohibitive, so it's not enough to say that we're open to the public. Um, we're in Suitland, Maryland, so we're not even on the mall. Um, and uh, you have to take a shuttle to get there. We have a very kind of intimidating badge process to get there. Um, but also, if you're from a remote community, getting to Washington, D.C. is very expensive. And so we have to think about these as national collections that have very local implications, but that are dis distant from these people who want to have access to them. And not very much of our collections uh, you know, are actually digitized and online, as I said. And even fewer have actual digital surrogates, the actual archival documents digitized and online. And of course, that's not what people expect. Most um, users now expect that you know, this is the Amazugal world, and that if they search for something, they're going to find not just the thing they're looking for, but they're going to find a digitized document that's already there, and maybe it's even transcribed for them so they can keyword search through it. And in fact, of course, that's not the case in any archives, and certainly not here. So we have to deal with those uh, shifting expectations. Um, and then what I thought was really interesting talking to this range of people was that even uh, folks with graduate degrees, PhDs in history or anthropology um, had never actually received any training in how archives work, so they might have been trained in how to critically read archival sources, but not how to actually go to a finding aid and, uh, you know, 
understand the way the sort of infrastructure of information. And so I think that's a, um, something that we're looking at as a possible uh, learning opportunity for everybody um, to sort of help people understand how archives are organized and how information is organized. So for the next uh, two years that I'm working on this project, uh, we're talking about getting more into the nitty gritty with people by doing screen sharing and things like that to understand how they look for collections. Um, and then we're also talking about doing some kind of wider survey to get at the people who don't currently use us at all. So the, what I did this year was all with people who already know who we are. It's kind of interesting to think about who doesn't know who we are and who are they and what would they do with these collections. So that's the purpose of possibly doing a survey. Um, this past year, we've started to uh, make some improvements. So we have a new um, appointment form so that visitors who come to us can self-identify who they are and what their interests are and why they want to look at our collections. Um, and we have a new um, reference database to try to keep track of who people are and, and why they're coming. Um, we're also trying to work more with other Smithsonian units, like the Transcription Center. If you've seen the Transcription Center, does a lot of wonderful crowdsourced um, transcription of archival documents, and that's a great way to get more of our collections um, keyword searchable in Smithsonian systems. And of course, like everybody else, we're going to apply for grants and try to uh, get some support to do both collections and, and research work. Um, so returning to the the general topic here, um, you know, we're our, for us the designated communities for this collection are much wider than I think were originally conceived. And in particular, we're really committed to working to make these collections more accessible for native researchers, but also a wider swath of the, of the public. Um, and uh, we're hoping that this study will help us invite feedback from those different users and get a better sense of what they need and to help us make tangible improvements to increase access. And again, going back to um, Francois, sort of the functions of ICOM's definitions here, I think we're, we need to be thinking about access in a much broader way and thinking about ethical, proactive, um, culturally responsive, nuanced access to these collections. And um, hopefully we can do that at the National Anthropological Archives and other people can learn from the example there. OK, great. Thank you, Diana. That was great. Uh, next up, finally, and you know, last but not least, is Antoinette Guillermo, who is the Associate Director for the Getty Leadership Institute at Claremont Graduate University. And her presentation <clears throat> is entitled The Museums of Greater Consciousness. Tony. Hello. And thank you to ICOM and Southern New Hampshire University for the invitation to participate in today's symposium. And a special thanks to uh, James, Susie, and Rob for their work organizing this event. Um, my talk is titled Museums of Greater Consciousness. And I realize I set the bar uh, very high with this title as I was writing it uh, for myself and for all of us as we discuss defining the museum for the 21st century. So I was inspired actually by cultural critic Neil Postman, who gave a provocative keynote at ICOM in 1989, extending the concept of a museum at that time. So my talk revisits Postman for the insights he offers to present day museum practices for evolving multiculturalism. Though not explicitly stated in the ICOM museum definition, in, 23, in 2018, we expect that museums will be inclusive as possible in doing their work. 
by presenting the narratives of discrete cultural groups, local and regional communities, and sometimes specific individuals. Museums also increasingly take a stand on social justice issues, although this too is not explicit in the museum definition. Without doing so, a museum potentially faces a loss of relevance to its audiences, criticism for being elitist or tone deaf, and condemnation for being neutral. So does evolving multiculturalism now require a new definition of the museum? In attempting to answer this, I'd like to explore three principles related to the work museums do around multiculturalism. The first is the inherent value of museums. In the 1980s, museums experienced tensions in balancing the delivery of entertainment versus education and faced the promises and perils of technology. Postman proposed instead that museums focus on human values. Things have changed since Postman's time, and we've seen a growing number of museums that now embrace humanistic concepts, such as peace museums around the world, the emerging Museum of Humanity in Los Angeles, and sites of conscience. However, Postman identified an inherent and enduring value for any kind of museum. He said, a museum of any kind is an answer to a fundamental question. The question is, what does it mean to be a human being? As Postman defined it, museums each create a living portrait of what it means to be a human in a particular time and place. Each museum, he said, has a unique story to tell about humanity that is specific to its time, location, mission, and collection. It's important for us to remember this value, but it's also informative for multicultural practices. A central characteristic of humanity in the 21st century, after all, is its diversity. A single museum cannot tell all the diverse stories of humanity. It seems then that a specific museum at best can use its collection to tell some of the stories, accepting that these may be directly relevant to only a local or limited audience, and or the museum can use its unique specifications to present universals about the human condition that are relatable and meaningful to a broad and diverse audience. Postman identified another purpose for museums that resonates today. He proposed that a museum must be an argument with its society, a timely argument, that should run counterculture. He said, the most vital function of museums is to balance, to regulate what we might call the symbolic ecology of culture by putting forward alternative views and thus keeping choice and critical dialogue alive. This panel asks whether museums should be open forums to address these complex issues in the community. Some museums are doing the work that Postman proposed 30 years ago of keeping critical dialogue alive. And some of us feel that, as he suggested, we set forth a moral agenda for our times. In social justice work, though, museums should be guided by their unique strengths. Museums are uniquely suited to inspire philosophical, intellectual, or emotional insights, for instance, as opposed to outlining assertive actions or advocacy plans for their communities. Postman argued, for it is essential to the survival of any culture 
that it maintain a dynamic balance in its symbolic environment. And to achieve that, its educational institutions must provide what its economic, political, and social institutions are not providing. In other words, the more that we aim to be like other organizations in doing this work, the more museums diminish their unique purpose and inherent value in society. A more pointed question for our forum today then is whether museums are obliged to do this work, and if so, should the definition of a museum be changed to include it? Multiculturalism and social justice are strong characteristics of the museum field in the 21st century, but they are not always characteristic of a museum. Museums help our visitors see the world and themselves in the world in new ways, and we know that sometimes this occurs through the quiet evocation of awe, beauty, and wonder from the objects, rather than from a strong didactic or political stance. Writer Adam Gopnik describes a mindful museum for the 21st century as one that does not always seek to explain. Whether a museum should provide forums to openly address complex issues truly depends on the specific museum's mission and its underlying motivations for doing so. Some museums will choose not to open their gates to these debates. Do we regard those museums who abstain as any less qualified to be called a museum or as any less useful, relevant, or inclusive? A second principle for multiculturalism is relevance. A challenge with relevance is it presupposes that the museum needs to be relevant to something or someone. And this is apparent by quickly looking at the various metaphors used to describe the museum. In the 20th century, scholars and critics likened the museum to a temple, a cathedral, a storehouse, a department store, a cafe, and a machine or factory, among other things. Um, including a laboratory. These metaphors speak to the strategies of display or the character of the visitor experience. In recent years, we have seen a different set of descriptors that speak to the values of the museum itself. The disruptive museum, the predatory museum, the empathetic museum, the convivial museum, the inclusive museum, the mindful museum, and the decolonized museum. Looking holistically at these metaphors, what is apparent and commendable is that the museum is malleable, changing with its society, striving always to be relevant at different times. What is also apparent is that the museum becomes a blank canvas upon which is projected our most pressing social concerns. The problem this poses is that the museum can become like a ship without a rudder, swaying to meet every trend and confront every social cause can result in mission drift. Overreaching for relevance or caving to internal or external pressures makes museums vulnerable to practices that are askew. A recent installation in a New England art museum features text panels indicating which early American sitters in the portrait gallery traced their wealth to slavery. This is not an exhibition about slavery or slave owners. The portraits show the wealth and status of the sitters indicated by their clothing and setting, the byproducts of their involvement with slavery. We may applaud this interpretation for filling the negative space with information about slave owners in colonial America, or we may wonder how an artwork becomes a prop to expose historical individuals within a complex social narrative that is pervasive in most American art. Yet, even if a museum does not present the stories of a multicultural group or social identity group, 
it is still relevant to the individuals that visit. Delineating the levels of analysis in the audience museums serve may provide insight. Museums serve individuals, local communities, social identity groups, and societies at large. Research and theory tell us that individuals come to museums with different learning goals and motivations or to construct and reinforce personal identity. Even while museums are consciously striving to be relevant, though, one institution cannot be inclusive to all constituents. Museums on mass, the diversity of museums, however, have the capacity to cover a lot of ground. Postman recognized what he called a great conversation among the museums of the world, in which each museum seems to make an assertion about the nature of humanity, sometimes supporting and enriching each other's claims, but just as often contradicting each other. He added, it is not possible to have too many museums, for the more we have, the more detailed and comprehensive will be the portrait of humanity. We can ask, how might the diversity of museums be leveraged to foster collaboration into the 21st century that evolve multiculturalism in ways beyond the capacity and impact of a single institution? The third principle is inclusion, meaning I am represented and I have a voice. And this leads to another question posed in our panel. What role should the broader public and other stakeholders play in the design and interpretation of exhibits, programs, events, and communication? In 2017, curators at the Getty Museum solicited public feedback on social media while developing an exhibition about marginalized groups of the medieval world. They sought to encourage transparency and a dialogue on diversity and inclusion and connect European manuscripts to a contemporary multicultural audience. Among the responses on Tumblr, art critic Holland Cotter called for museums to start telling the truth about art. Postman would agree. In 1989, he proclaimed, what we require are museums that tell us what we once were and what is wrong with what we are and what new directions are possible. Museums do well to examine their inclusive practices and to push the boundaries of their scholarly expertise and authority as they invite others into the conversation. In probing the complexities of co-creating content, Philippe de Montebello, former longtime director of the Metropolitan Museum, cautioned, the only thing is that the museum must never lose the sense of authority, not authoritarianism. The visitors must always have a sense that what is presented to them is the result of deep thought, calculated actions, and expertise. Once again, this rings true for Postman, who said, we do not need museums in America unless they frame what they show us from some critical point of view. Alongside deeply layered interpretive approaches or collaborative processes, museums still have a professional obligation to curate co-created content responsibly. As museums seek to balance the diversity of voices, the attending question arises of who has the authority to speak on behalf of the museum or any other cultural or social identity group for that matter. The controversy earlier this year surrounding the hiring of a white curator of African art at the Brooklyn Museum marks a crisis point. In a recent op-ed in the New York Times, philosopher Kwame Anthony Appiah advocates to go ahead, speak for yourself, and proposes that not every opinion needs to be underwritten by your race or gender or other social identity. Inevitably, when one story is told in museums, 
or one voice is heard in the galleries, others are left out. Museums should take heed in these processes that one dominant narrative is not just supplanted for another. The work requires that museums lead dialogues where all can listen with greater empathy and respect to the uniquely individual voices of others. In the last 30 years, the field has awakened to the inherent biases and injustices in the objects museums have collected, in the ways they are displayed, and in the communities excluded. This work of, of evolving multicultural methodologies is our special craft as museum professionals, and it is an ever-evolving skill. Sometimes the portrait of humanity museums offer falls short and is painful to look at, requiring amends, as the case with Sam Durant's scaffold sculpture at the Walker Art Center last year. And sometimes we can celebrate milestones, as with the opening of the National Museum of African American History and Culture. It's important to call out inequities of all kinds so that museums can do better. And it's equally important to look back at how far museums have come since the 1990s. Without marking progress, the paradigm story of museums excluding people of color never shifts into a contemporary vision and a new empowered reality about alliances and inclusion. Museum forums can host polemic conversations that put communities at odd with each other and call out dominant narratives in opposition to subverted ones. Or instead, museums can choose now to shift into conversations that embrace a greater collective awareness of the ground that has been gained and practice empathy with their communities as well as towards each other in the field. In closing, we've um, talked about three principles of value, relevance, and inclusion related to the work museums do around multiculturalism. To stay grounded, museums can take strategic actions that are authentic, balanced, and aligned with a given organization's mission, collections, and audiences, as well as leverage the diverse and collective body of museums. Museums can remain critical and conscious about their efforts, knowing that as the definition of the museum evolves, alongside evolving multiculturalism, museums can sometimes do better, but are certainly not doing wrong. Thank you. Thank you, Tony. All right, great. Thank you, Tony. And that is all of the panelists for our group here today. We've heard from all of our speakers. Uh, I think that Susie and I will take a little bit of time to offer some comments on these papers that were just presented, but we also, of course, will open this up to all of the people in the room if you have any questions, just like in the earlier panels. Like always, uh, if you have a question, feel free to click on the person icon located up at the top of the page to raise your hand, and then James will acknowledge you, bring you into the conversation, and activate your microphone so that you can pose the question to us. So for now, uh, Susie, do you have any comments to make on this before we jump into the student, ah, and so the audience questions? So I'll just do a brief recap of, of Natalie's presentation and Diana's presentation. And uh, Rob will give a recap of, of Sarah's and Tony's. So I understood uh, Natalie's presentation as a development of the Abraham Lincoln Library Museum and the case study on a special program of the people by the people for the people, which also extended towards a traveling exhibit. And it linked the past and present together and explored the meaning of citizenship. 
uh, allowing constructive learning through conversations um, involving politically charged, quote, politically charged conversations um, with activism and involving the community at large. And um, your point was that rural museums are not neutral, that they are open to civic engagement. And um, then I will recap Diana's. And she showed us the development of the National Anthropological Archives. And um, she has emphasized the need for use, access, and discoverability. And you defined all your weaknesses so well, <laughs> a detailed analysis of the weaknesses. Um, the repository needs and the user's needs, defining that, and through interviews uh, and evaluations of the users, which was very interesting that they're not just researchers, but they're filmmakers as well as the Native community. And that's wonderful. Um, and her emphasis was on the infrastructure of information and having a culturally nuanced access within the ICOM definition. I hope I was right. <laughs> All right. And for um, and then we'll come back around and see if anybody has any questions. But before we jump to that, I'll uh, offer some comments on the other two papers. Uh, Sarah's paper really did a good job of talking about the imagery of the museum as a laboratory, which is something that's always been interesting to me. Um, Bruno mentioned that in our interview for the for the podcast a while ago, and so I like to think of people like Victor uh, Diamico as you know mad scientists pushing the boundaries of what's possible in the confines of a museum. But I also love to focus on experiential museums and programs. Um, since I've been part of the planning for this symposium, I of course keep bringing up museums to everybody in all walks of life, whether they want to hear about it or not, and the people who would usually be bored by such a conversation, usually light up when they start talking about arts or sciences museums where they get to participate in the exhibits and become part of the historical trends that they're talking about. And as Sarah notes, these aren't only meant for children. They can also serve as essential purposes for adults like reintegrating veterans into mainstream life after World War II, as you mentioned in her uh, paper. Um, and the images that Sarah shared in her presentation were amazing and helped to convey some of the joy that some people feel as part of these experiential programs. Uh, so going back to kind of what I was talking about this morning, uh, this reminds me of the descriptions of interactive programs and museums that we've heard about in other countries also. And experimentation is an important aspect of modern museum studies. So. Uh, Sarah, one thing I'd like you to—I'd uh, like to hear from you about uh, once we get to the Q&A part of it—is uh, with your involvement with uh, MOMA, and you talked about how they're going through an expansion or a transition right now. Do you see these types of things continuing forward in programs at MOMA? Um, so um, you nodded yes. So obviously you already have an answer to that. So that's good. So um, let me—I'll. Uh, I'll, uh, debrief Tony here real quick, and then we can come back and we can talk to all of everybody here as a group. Um, but uh, Antoinette's paper did a really good job talking about how value, reverence, and inclusion are hugely important goals for modern museums. 
and they will become more important even as, as time goes on and as museum specialists try to integrate their institutions into the communities around them even more. Uh, but I like that this paper recognizes that museums have a charge to embrace activism, but it also brings up the idea that not that museums shouldn't just blindly charge into that kind of thing, because if museums are supposed to represent the communities around them, not everybody in the local community is going to want uh, the museum taking the charge in activism and all of that. So I, while I agree with the idea that museums will become more activist as time goes on, I do like the idea that, well, we, we also have to do it smart in a smart way that incorporates different viewpoints and all of that. So I, I look forward to hearing some, some more on that. Um, but these were a great round of papers. Thank you all for um, contributing these. And so I suppose we can probably jump into the questions now. Um, uh, I suppose the, the question, the main question that I was posing was for Sarah, but what do you see as future interactive experiential programs like the ones you discussed at MOMA and elsewhere? So um, we are, uh, as I have said, in a process of expanding and we are, uh, I, I like to joke, we are in a back to the future moment. So we are trying to uh, make sense of what we have been and what we are and try to see what we can possibly be. And um, in very practical terms, uh, the quote uh, by Barr is uh, quite repeated. And uh, we keep thinking about reimagining ourselves through processes of modern art. Um, right now, we have, uh, from the educational uh, department, uh, the art lab that uh, even has some of the uh, uh, and I love that you called him uh, the mad scientist uh, of D'Amico, uh, some of the reproductions uh, that um, of elements that were used in these motivational spaces. Um, we also had last summer the people's studio, uh, and again, uh, to the idea of, of the people, by the people, for the people, uh, that it is something we need to take very cautiously. I understand uh, that uh, from the perspective of the uh, institution giving uh, the opportunity uh, for people to create, we need to be careful with how we address that. Um, but at the same time, we are the, we are recovering, uh, in a sense, something that I don't think was ever lost, uh, that the galleries are places for things to happen uh, in the in accordance to the collection that uh, I want to say and uh, connecting to Tony's presentation that uh, we are reimagining ourselves as a laboratory and I think that has a lot to do with the nature of our collection that it is experimental in nature and if we are going to embody the values of our collection, we need to be experimental in nature. Otherwise, we would be uh, misleading the audience or not being honest with ourselves. Uh, I don't want to say that I mean, certain elements of our experimentation, our laboratories, might be integrated in other museums, uh, and that's, my, that's what I suspect, but uh, definitely it has to do with our own DNA. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And experimentation is the way that you're going to survive going forward. This actually connects back to um, 
to some of the points that Rob brought up in his recap. And it's something that I've been thinking about um, throughout this entire symposium. We've heard a lot about activism and museums as a place of activism. And while activism doesn't always have to be political activism, uh, quite often that is the interpretation and the intention when we talk about the museum or any location as a place of activism. Um, so while this is an admirable um, admirable approach, at least from those of us who agree that the museum should and can be a place of activism. I wonder how do we make sure that when we are promoting the museum as a place of activism that we aren't leaving behind an entire population. Um, so I'm thinking a little bit, you know, making a connection to uh, to the late night uh, talk show um, conversations that popped up after the election. You, you have people like Jimmy Fallon who didn't initially want to bring politics into the mix, whereas you have people like Trevor Noah, um, Colbert, um, who actively bring politics into the mix. And then what do you do when the activism, if say you have a museum um, that promotes an activist agenda, but that agenda runs counter to um, something that, you know, uh, an academic who might be of a liberal bent might support. Um, how do you then allow for those dissenting activist voices that might follow a more conservative or um, anti-liberal agenda? Um, so I, there's a lot to unpack there. And I even had other <laughs> other uh, digressions. But um, I'll just leave it at that, because I'd love to hear all of your comments. Well, I think, Tony, this was probably most directly related to your Okay, great. Thank you. Um, yeah, thank you, James, for that question. And uh, I'll go ahead and start with uh, just some thoughts because I've been thinking about it in the context of multicultural um, methodologies and the overlap there into areas of social justice. And I think, you know, as I was sort of thinking through the position, um, what I, what I, that a museum might take is that um, it's, you know, it's moving into the 21st century. It's almost um, unavoidable and actually part of um, what makes a museum unique to be able to provide these open forms. So I think that that's actually a very good thing for a museum to do and to embrace and not really feel like they have to have the answer in hosting a forum, but to be able to, like um, content in the gallery, help curate a, a responsible discussion about the issues. and. Just like content in the gallery, it's going to isolate some people that maybe don't want to come to that discussion. But I think what's really key there is that the museum doesn't jump into um, going beyond the limits of what its strength is as a museum, which is you know doing social justice work as a museum, which is helping people to see things that are emotional or intellectual or educational um, or aesthetic, but not necessarily taking um, plans of action that are like what Postman said other organizations do. So a museum shouldn't try to turn itself into, you know, um, a social organization or a political organization, but post those conversations in a way that brings out its strengths through material culture. And then another point that I was um, sort of in my talk, but I will just make it maybe a little more explicit now, is um, in, in my opinion, then that museums should be very particular in what social justice causes they are taking on because, um, you know, then I, it's kind of what I was mentioning about mission drift. There's a lot of pressure to join the conversation, to not be neutral, to 
um, you know, to not be tone deaf, but it still means that, you know, a, a social cause or a cultural cause that has some sort of um, activist element to it still needs to align with the mission, the collection, and the audience in some key way. Otherwise, the museum is, is adrift. So um, those are my thoughts on that. Thank you. There's also just yeah. the, the, mm -hmm. the idea that museums usually have limited resources, so you can't always jump onto every, every cause because you yeah. only can another point that I was also wanting to make is that there's a diversity of museums so one museum shouldn't feel like it has to take on every cause and be relevant to every community although we strive for that um, responsibly but when you look at the or whole body of museums um, prisons uh, penitentiary museums might want to take on you know issues of reform and prison reform but an art museum may not need to to do that because we have this collective body of museums that is our community in museums that we should be working with collaboratively and i would agree with that and follow up on tony's one of the reasons that we picked to talk about citizenship and uh, voting rights was because with the civil war amendments to the united states constitution the 13th the 14th and 15th and Lincoln being so tied into conversations about that, we were able to create a staging ground for those conversations. But it goes to like what Sarah was talking about as well. We were hoping that creating those conversations would function as a type of lab of experimentation, not of pushing a particular view, but allowing people to come in, use the collection to start seeing themselves in the story or be able to jumpstart questions uh, between various groups so that they could have conversations about citizenship while using uh, our collection too. And we didn't want to foist this on the visitor as well while they were there. They didn't have to interact, but they were invited to if they were interested in interacting uh, either in person through our program talks or through interactive exhibits that invited them to think more deeply and answer questions about citizenship, they could then do so. Yeah, I, I would like to add uh, to, uh, to your point that uh, I totally agree that um, sometimes it's not so much about labeling, labeling ourselves as we are activists. It's about meeting people where they are and meeting people where the struggles are. So, uh, just to give you an example, um, in the galleries uh, last summer uh, during the Barcelona attacks, well, we had to talk about it, even if uh, it was out of our route or, uh, and we are all human beings and we are aware of what is going on. Uh, we need to find ways of embracing that while we keep uh, in our own agenda. That is, uh, I agree, is uh, very important that we need to be permeable to uh, whatever is going on. That if we talk about Picasso and somebody talks about the Me Too movement, we, we address that. Uh, that's not an issue. The other thing, um, you know, I work at the Natural History Museum. That's like the bigger institution that I work for. And, you know, at the Smithsonian in general and in natural history, you know, we're not going to be politically partisan in any way. National funding, uh, it's very important to be kind of not taking any political agenda. But, um, you know, I think promoting what's 
currently the consensus in science about, say, climate or um, promoting the new ethical paradigms uh, that we need to be understanding in terms of indigenous peoples or indigenous histories or any of those kinds of things, we can promote those ideas um, and try to, you know, help people be exposed to those things who might not otherwise be exposed to them. But the other thing I think that's important in our context, I mean, the archives almost never do anything in the exhibitions, but the exhibitions at Natural History have very long timelines. So, you know, you wouldn't bother to, you know, if an exhibition, even the temporary exhibitions, take a long time to put in place and are up for a long time. And so I think just even in terms of logistics, it's not worth it. You know, our permanent galleries are up for like 30 years and the temporary halls can be up for five. So, you know, you're not going to try to respond to those things and instead people try to kind of just present what's the, the, the newest thinking, the newest ideas and try to get people, meet people, as you were saying, Sarah, where they're at in terms of those ideas and try to making, make them palatable for people. Yes, I wonder if this is going to be more the realm of uh, local community museums rather than a large-scale national museum, because maybe the local museum is able to take on the causes that are important to the people that live directly around the museum or something. So yeah, I think that's maybe another way they can limit their involvement in different causes is just go just pick the top causes that... Uh... So um, I was just wondering, because I've never been to the National Anthropological Archive, I've been to the National Archive. You're in good Archive. company. And I, I, I was so <laughs> impressed with the National Archives exhibits. It's just phenomenal. And I was just wondering how that compares with the National Anthropological Archives exhibit space. Well, so we don't have any designated exhibit space. So we're part of natural history. And so every once in a while, like currently, there's a show called Objects of Wonder that's up in the galleries. And we've got a couple pieces in there. Um, but we don't have our own designated space. So um, I previously worked at the American Philosophical Society, which is a place where we could do like archival exhibitions and try to focus on that. Um, but at the NAA, we don't really have that. So we're working, we just put in a proposal now to work with the libraries on a small set of cases in the lobby that would be temporary, um, which at Natural History is still great because if you get 7 million visitors, you'll still get a bunch of people seeing it seeing even a couple of cases, but unfortunately we don't have any designated space. That must be very interesting to compare the American Philosophical Society's development with the National Anthropological Archives uh, development to see, you know, the differences and how they collected and their rationale. Yeah, and in some ways it's almost like going chronologically, so the APS was really big on collecting indigenous languages up until, you know, the early 19th century. And then a lot of that stuff became government collecting. And then it, the Smithsonian took on a lot of that work that had previously been in these kind of smaller intellectual societies. So I sort of moved chronologically from one job to the other. <laughs> we have another question. Uh, Mohammed is back with us. And let's see if. Um, if we have some good audio from him this time. Mohammed, I just activated your microphone. Um, so let's test it out and then ask your question. Can you hear me? Hello? Hello? OK. Yeah. OK. Uh, um, hello, everyone. My yes, question is much about, better this time. Uh, Thank you. Community engagement 
through the uh, uh, anthropological co uh, collection that uh, our colleague mentioned, Diana. So, as you may know, when you, when when you want to uh, pa participate with the community, the imagination of the community is important. Uh, my question is how to uh, uh, show, showcasing the voice of the community in your activity. Yeah, so. the records themselves, so in terms of the actual, you know, catalog records or finding aids that we have, trying to get more indigenous input into those, um, but that's happening in a pretty limited way, and like I said, we don't have exhibition space, so we'll have, um, you know, we, we host every two years the National Breath of Life Archival Institute, so it's some 30-odd indigenous um, language speakers come to the archives and work with the language materials. And during programs like that, you know, there are uh, blog posts or public um, forums and things like that. Um, but currently, you know, it's more internal, like trying to get community voice into the actual archival space and into those records, if that answers your question. Uh, it is interesting to me uh, that uh, Part, uh, particularly about the indigenous uh, collection, uh, because uh, the the idea of curators and archivists some sometimes is uh, are totally different with uh, the thought of uh, uh, the people who are part of the community. So. I think uh, this point is important. Yeah, and I think similarly, you know, the way, um, you know, the way, as Alice was talking about, the whole way that you think about what, um, you know, an object is or means or how something should be organized or how, what curation even is or, you know, how you might think about the uses of museum or archival collections is, you know, really different between different communities. And um, and so being a centralized collection as we are, we're trying to be responsive to as many different voices as we can, but we're still kind of a central colonial repository, and so we still are dealing with that legacy and dealing with those infrastructures um, that we have in place. And, you know, we don't have any indigenous staff members at the archives. We have indigenous staff members at Natural History, and that's something that should change in future. Yeah, it sounds good. Thank you. Okay. So do we have anybody else in the uh, audience that has any questions? Okay. Well, I guess that's that. All right. Well, that was great. That worked really well. So thank you all for joining joining us here. And we are scheduled to take one last break, and then we're going to hear from our final keynote speaker, uh, Bruno Brillant Suarez. And um, since it's, you know, 4:46 on a Friday. Perhaps we will, perhaps we'll be able to get back a little bit early, and maybe we can even wrap up a little bit early. But we will see what we can do. So everybody can take, you know, take at least a few minutes to go get something to drink, walk around a little bit, get some blood flowing, and then meet back here 
And as soon as everybody's back and we've got Bruno ready to go, we will start up again and uh, we will finish the rest of our presentation.